Well, if you'd open up back up to 2 Samuel chapter 21. If you're new with us, we like to uh, preach expositionally here. That is, we work through books of the Bible, just kind of section by section. And so we've been going through 2 Samuel. And uh, we tend to do something from the Old Testament, and then we may jump into an epistle or a gospel and move back and forth so that over a couple years here, you will have been exposed to a lot of the genres of Scripture. And uh, so we like to uh, see these things within their context. So hopefully you can be learning to read your Scriptures within the context and seeing them in the light of Christ. As we, uh, as we come to this chapter... We enter the epilogue of this book. An epilogue functions to kind of leave a, a final taste in your mouth from the author. So from chapters 21 to 24 of, uh, of this book, the author stops moving along chronologically. You'll notice that this story doesn't necessarily happen next. Um, he stops moving along chronologically, and he kind of wraps up some of his emphasis uh, thematically. These chapters look back over the whole of David's reign and help us to see it in light of, of the bigger work of the kingdom of God. Basically, it's, it's how does David's kingdom relate to the kingdom of God. That's what he's trying to, to leave us with. And the first story recounted here in this epilogue is a tough one. It's not something you would include if you were trying to paint David in a, a positive light, or if you, know, if you were in his employment writing his history, this is not something you would put in there. It's not something you include if you were just making things up about the history of Israel. It's, it's a real downer. It's hard to read. There's no feel-good or warm or cozy in this text. There's no room for me to put in any puppy illustrations in here. It starts hard, it ends harder, and it just feels wrong. But God wants us to see this. In fact, he wants us to, to finish off this book with the truth portrayed here resonating in us. So we need to go ahead and take a hard look at this uncomfortable and hard story. And as we do, the first thing that we see is what I've titled guilt Clarity. Look at verse 1 with me. Let's read it again. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he has put the Gibeonites to death. So we are told here that Sometime during David's reign, there was a three-year famine. Now, this is a big deal. We read right past it. We, talk, we hear about famines, famines in the Bible. We don't think that much. But, you know, three years of famine. This is a time of struggle and suffering, of, of starving children, of families wasting away. I mean, famine today is horrible. We don't really experience it here, but we see it, you know, pictures of it with, uh, uh, on our televisions, children with their distended bellies and 
starving nursing mothers, and, and we get the calls for humanitarian aid. Back then, it was even worse, and there was no aid to be airdropped in. It was just hard, hopeless suffering. So David prayed. I don't know how often he prayed or how long this was going on, but he sought the face of the Lord. He asked him, why? Why is this happening? What is happening? Now, now famine can come for a number of reasons, right? Maybe it's just because of some unfortunate circumstance in nature, what we like to call natural disasters. Or biblically, it could be because Israel is, is being disciplined by God because of some corporate unfaithfulness so as to draw them back to him. But here, David is given a very specific answer. Blood guilt. Blood guilt that goes back to Saul and his genocidal treatment of the Gibeonites. I know if you, if you were here for our when we taught through Joshua, you remember that in Joshua chapter 9, when Israel was coming in to take over the promised land and God had commanded them to, to push all the four nations out of the promised land, the Gibeonites had a plan. They were in the promised land, but they decided they would send a delegate of men ahead to meet David and his armies and to... They dressed up like they were from a far-off land in old tattered clothes, and they, they took old moldy bread so that it looked like they had traveled for hundreds and hundreds of miles, and they showed up and said, hey, would you make, we, we know you're coming in, we know that you're really dominant, we're from a far-off land, would you make a covenant with us not to destroy us? And the leadership of Israel looked at, tasted the bread, looked and said, well, well, sure, and they made a covenant with them. They made a covenant in the name of Yahweh not to destroy them. And by the time they realized that the Gibeonites were actually in their land, in the promised land, and that they had been duped, it was too late. They had already made a covenant in the name of Yahweh. A covenant, I'm going to go back and read it from Joshua chapter 9. This is what it was. It was a covenant made uh, with wrath sealing it. This is what it said. Then the congregation murmured against the leaders. They were upset with their leaders because their leaders had been duped. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This is what we will do. Let them live, lest wrath be on us because of the oath that was sworn to them. So the Gibeonites became this kind of protected people living amongst the people of God in the promised land, enjoying the blessings of the land with Israel. Now later, when Saul took over power, he didn't like this arrangement. And if you know anything about Saul, you know that he was more interested in expedience than he was in obedience to God. And so he decided to try to wipe out the Gibeonites. So he massacred many of them. We don't know what the number was, but that's obviously there's still some around. But he massacred many of them. And in doing so, he broke the covenant. He sinned against Yahweh's name, literally took his name in vain, and thus incurred the wrath of God on his people. And thus, this famine, even generations later, this famine is because of Saul's and his family's blood guilt. 
Now, a few things that we need to note here, stop and think about. And the first is corporate or family guilt that's implied here. When we read this, we tend to immediately cringe at the idea that the blood guilt on Saul's house is extended out generations later to Israelite who didn't even know him and, and, and they are suffering the consequences of his sin and being held responsible to make it right. This just seems wrong to us and unfair to us. But note that David and the Israelites didn't flinch at this. Saul was their king at that time. They understood that they were represented in his actions. They couldn't just say, sorry, Gibeonites, you know, that, that wasn't us. That was some people in, in, in the past. Sorry, God, talk to Saul about that. It's not our issue. They knew they couldn't do that. No, their leadership made a covenant, and their king broke it, and they have a very real ownership of that guilt, and they know it. This shouldn't be a foreign idea to us as Christians. This is our story. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 1 that all sinned in Adam, correct? He was our representative, and sin came to all of us in him. And the consequence of the sin, the curse of the land. Notice how the land is cursed here in famine. The land was cursed in the garden. That bro the broken world because of sin. It's all upon us as well, just as it was on Israel with the famine. We are guilty in Adam. And we confirm it every day, Romans says, as we keep sinning. Sometimes I fear that in our American idea of, of kind of complete autonomy and individualism, which has a lot of truth and, and good things in it, but it gets pushed so far and causes us to sort of deny this truth. It's very clear in Scripture. There is a corporate reality to who we are before God. This is why we naturally, even as human beings, think in terms of family and tribes and nations. This is why God speaks of the church as his body, and we are all members of that body, intimately connected and enmeshed. And, and what we do even in our sin and our guilt is connected and affects all of us. This is why we have a corporate confession in our bulletin. It's a corporate confession. Because we sin in a, in a corporate reality. Now the thing to note about this blood guilt scene here is not just that there's a corporateness in it, but notice the mercy in it. David cries out to God to understand the suffering of this famine. And God lets him know the reason. They are guilty via Saul's actions. They are guilty. And we need to see the mercy in this, in this direct clarity of their guilt. They may not like it, but it's true. And he lets them know it. Dale Ralph Davies 
points out how in, in the ancient pagan religions of the day and the polytheism of the day, worshipers never need seem to know where they stood before the gods or, or, or the reason behind some suffering that had come upon him. So they would go and they would make multiple offerings and prayers to many gods over and over again, trying to appease the one they may have offended. It was nebulous and hopeless and cruel. How do they fix it if they don't know what they've done or who they've offended? But Yahweh just lays it out with clarity. He declares our guilt to us. This is what the law is all about in Scripture, right? To amplify our sin, to give us no doubt of who we have offended and what we've done. This is mercy. He doesn't leave us in the dark. It's like getting an accurate diagnosis of your disease. It may be ugly. It may be even terminal, but you need the truth so you can act so you can pursue a solution. Which brings me to the next point of the text here, the solution, which is gruesome atonement. We move from guilt clarity to a gruesome scene of atonement. This is where the story gets very disturbing. David, having taken on board God's answer about their blood guilt, goes to the Gibeonites to try to resolve it. Look at verse 3 with me. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. They said, Hey, this isn't about money. That can't fix it. And by the way, we don't have any authority to put anybody to death in Israel. I think they were kind of hinting that they'd like to do that, but they didn't have any authority. So then we get to verse 4, and he, David, said, What do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, that's Saul, so that we should have no place in the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. The Gibeonites want blood for blood. They want seven of Saul's sons, the, his, his blood descendants, to be executed. Seven in, in the Bible is quite often the number of, of completion, probably being kind of representative of Saul's whole house. Give us seven of them, of his line. For them, this will be, in some sense, justice. Things will, this will make things right. This is why they say, have them hung before the Lord, they say. Because in their minds, this, this will bring some satisfaction before the Lord. So it's not so much about vengeance. It's about appeasing the wrath of God and stopping the famine. And without hesitation, David agrees. He says, I will give them. Now again, this just seems very unacceptable to us. I mean, how about some 
negotiations, the offer of, of maybe some reparations. Surely David, being the one in the power position, which he was, he had all the armies, surely he could bargain a more palatable solution than this. How can he just agree to slaughter seven of his own? Well, I think it's because he knows it is the only way. Their covenant with the Gibeonites in Joshua 9 had been sealed with a promise of God's wrath upon them. If they did not keep it, and that wrath must be satisfied. In Joshua 9, the Hebrew says they cut an oath with the Gibeonites. That it's the idea where they would actually take an animal and cut it in half and set the two sides and they would walk between it as they made their promises to each other in this, in this oath. And the idea was, if we don't keep this oath, we'll be cut up like this animal. On top of this, the Old Testament states very clearly in Numbers 35, 33, that any blood spilt in the promised land could only be atoned for by the blood of the one who spilt it. You see, blood atonement is the only way to deal with the curse of sin and covenant disobedience so as to appease the just wrath of God. And since Saul and his original house are not there, these men are put forward as what? As representatives, substitutes, to bear the blood guilt, to pay for it in their blood. And in the next scene, it's carried out. Look at it with me. Look at verse 8. Then the king took two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, not the Mephibosheth that we've heard of earlier, not the crippled Mephibosheth, but a different guy, and the five sons of Merab, and the daughters of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahoathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them. That word is hung up, probably impaled, on the mountain before the Lord. And seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first day of harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, if that doesn't leave you horrified and sickened, you're not really getting yourself in this scene, in this moment. You're really not getting it. Seven sons, brothers, fathers, husbands, who seem to have done nothing, slaughtered, hanging, impaled in public. It's gruesome. It's sad. It's hopeless. It's full of wailing and mourning and the stench of death. This is always the nature, the reality of atonement for sin. We can easily talk about atonement very academically and kind of analyze it theologically as an abstract idea. And we like to wear shiny crosses as jewelry that make it seem beautiful and romanticized. But atonement always means nasty, bloody, gruesome, horrific, death-drenched ugliness. It's terrible. 
And I think this is part of why the sacrificial system, what it was always trying to teach with its very graphic animal butchery, right? If you read through all the descriptions of what was done in, in those sacrifices, it, it, it's, it's terrible. But here, it's pictured in living color human display to grab hold of us. We are supposed to be horrified. And look at how the whole scene ends in verse 10. Then Rizbah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. The mother of, of two of these sacrificed men spreads, spends the next weeks until the rains come desperately trying to keep the animals off the corpses of her sons. Day and night, she mourns at the foot of their impaled bodies trying to protect and honor them. Until we're told that, that David hears about her and he, he comes and he helps her take their bones and along with the bones of Saul and, and Jonathan takes them for a proper burial and the bones are buried in a grave. And the text ends in verse 14 with these words, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. God's wrath is turned away, and the famine ends, but all you can feel is extreme sadness. I think the, the, the victory of the moment, in a sense, just feels very hollow as this scene ends with these bones in the grave. So what are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to what are we supposed to take away from this? Well, first, and I think very simply, I think the application of this text is sadness. Sadness over sin. It's not a text where the application is action. You know, three things to do. No, this is a text that we are supposed to feel. The application here is an about, I think, the emotions of our soul. I think we're supposed to sit in the sadness of sin and feel its destruction and its despair and its shame. We so often take sin lightly. Our world plays it off as no big deal. It's just a bit of naughty fun. It's just some rule-breaking but this check shows the reality. Saul's sin brings destruction and suffering to everything and everybody around him. The land is cursed with famine and broken. His whole, whole families and tribes suffer and starve. His sons and grandchildren suffer and die under God's wrath. This is the nature of sin. It's not some isolated personal thing. It, it crosses the boundaries of relationships and lives and, and causes brokenness everywhere. What I do as a father and a husband affects my wife 
and my children and their children. It, it brings suffering way beyond myself. We may not like it, but we suffer from other sins and they suffer from ours, even our secret ones. The whole world, this planet, is groaning, according to Romans, because of our sin. When we look out and see all the pain and suffering and misery in this world, the hurting and damaged children, the trafficking and abuse, the domestic violence and war, the disaster and disease and exploitation, that's on us. That's our sin in full bloom. And according to Romans 1, 18 through 32, the suffering that ultimately comes from our sin is because of God's wrath bringing his discipline. And it's all just terribly sad. And this text is holding it up in our face and saying, look at it. Don't look away. Feel it. Own it. But there's another feeling that we're supposed to kind of wallow in as this story pours over us. I stated it earlier, and that is horror. The gruesome horror of atonement. The way this text lays this out and kind of shocks us and confuses us is no accident. Sin and its effects is horrific, horrific, but dealing with it Trying to atone and make it right is even worse. It's a bloody, gory, life-draining misery that ends in death. But we need to feel it deeply. Because this scene foreshadows the cross. This moment in Gibeah, as we let it sink in, should take us to Golgotha where another mother sat on a mountain mourning as her son was hung up to die. As we ingest the horrors of this scene, we should contemplate and feel the ultimate atoning work of Christ at the cross. Not just because it was bloody and torturous and foul like this scene, but because Jesus was atoning for the sins of not just one, or not just a few men, but for the sins of the world. He took on the blood guilt of us all, past, present, future. Think about that. Think about the torturous weight of that. Many years ago, we had an Australian evangelist here named Rico Tice, and he tried to illustrate the atoning work of Christ. And he said, picture a magnifying glass. You know how you can take a magnifying glass? You can take, hold it up in the sun and focus that beam of light into a little dot so that you can burn something with it. You might have done this as a child. <laughs> I used to. He said, picture a giant magnifying glass in the sky and all the sins of the world, just like all the power of the sun, all the sins of the world and all history focused in a hot beam on Jesus on the cross. He took it all. He did all the atoning work. He took all the wrath of God for us. 
He took all the suffering and evil and death that should be ours on him. He absorbed our very hell for us. Which brings me to the last feeling that this text should give us, and that is hope. The hope of the gospel. This text, taken by itself, ends in total despair and hopelessness. These seven men had, had, to, had to take atonement upon themselves. David couldn't help them. He had nothing to offer for them, no way to, to save them. They were hung up on wooden posts, crucified, if you will. They bled and died, and their bones were taken and buried crucified, dead, and buried, bones in the grave, the end. That's where the story leaves us. But there's one little glimmer of light in this text, one hopeful moment. Somebody is saved here. Did you notice that? Who's saved? It's in verse 7. Mephibosheth. The helpless, crippled son of Saul, who, who, who had been invited to David's table by David's grace. Look at verse 7. Let's read it. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Why is he saved? Because he is under a different covenant, a different oath. King David had made an oath, a covenant with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, to protect him. And unlike Saul, he is a king who's a covenant keeper. So Mephibosheth, out of all the sons, is spared and lives on in fellowship with his king. This should remind us of another king, a greater king, that has been promised through the line of David, a king who will be God's very son and bring a new covenant and a forever kingdom. And you know what the prophet Ezekiel prophesied about this Davidic king to come, the ultimate Davidic king? Not only will he bring a new covenant, an everlasting covenant, a covenant of peace, that's Ezekiel 37.6, where he puts things right between God and his people, but something else will happen in conjunction with this new covenant king. Ezekiel has a vision of it in Ezekiel 37. He has a vision of this valley of dry bones. All these graves with all these dry bones, just like our text ended, the bones in the grave. And these bones begin to rise up and they come to life. They're reanimated into bodies, and the Spirit of God fills them, and they're brought back into the land of blessing where they dwell with God. And Ezekiel then states to God's people that this vision is a promise. In fact, I'm going to read it. It's too good not to read. This is what he says to them after he has this vision. Then he said to me, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off like those seven sons of Saul. 
Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves. I will raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. My friends, when Jesus shows up, the ultimate Davidic king, son of God, and he goes to the cross to make atonement for our sins, to take on all our blood guilt, he was crucified, died, and was buried, just like these seven sons. But unlike 2 Samuel 21, that wasn't the end of the story. His bones rotting in the grave was not the end. No, on the third day after conquering death and sin and hell for us, Jesus arose. His bones were reanimated into the perfect resurrection body. He came out of the grave. He rose to new life. He ascended into heaven and he promises all who put their faith in him that this will be their reality. Not only will receive forgiveness, but they will receive that same spirit-filled resurrection life. 